And if all you're thinking about is the financial side, which is pretty much the way advisors tend to tell us to think about retirement, which is, do you have enough money or not? And if you do, you can retire. And if you don't, you can't. I think that's part of the package, but that's not all of it. And so I feel like I want more people to be thinking a little more holistically about how this stage of life will be for them and how they can make it fulfilling. Welcome to Longevity Gains, the show that reveals the near limitless opportunities for digital marketers and entrepreneurs in the longevity economy. We're talking about the people aged 50 and over who already account for more than half of consumer spending in the US and 83% of household wealth, which will only increase in the years to come. It's the $22 trillion opportunity you can't afford to ignore. Well, Brian, Saturday is a big day. And for once in the history of this podcast, that has nothing to do with Colorado football. Um, but it's a big day for you personally on Saturday. Yes, I will be turning 56, and I'm supposed to celebrate it by seeing the Buffs get devastated by USC, kind of like they just did by Oregon. But we're not going to talk about that because we promised we weren't talking about it anymore. Nope. Just in time. Nothing to see here. <laughs> for the hype to be over. See, that's the lesson there, Jared. Too much hype in your marketing can actually backfire on you. It can. It can. It, it can weirdly kind of get people rooting against you, even if there's a lot of <laughs> yeah. substance there and you haven't really done anything. You know, it can it can get people to be not on your side. So that's anyway. Anyway. Uh, yeah, I, I don't really count birthdays anymore, but, uh, you know, 56 chronologically. 40 subjectively emotional maturity about holding holding fast at 15 i mean <laughs> aren't we all it's all about your mindset jared you can't you got to have positive attitudes towards aging and uh See, I generally think, i would think you'd have a shot at actually having like a big birthday celebration your kids are out of the house now you know the focus can be back on you I mean, my, my my birthday doesn't matter. I have two young kids. My birthday is inconsequential. But are you telling me that even when the kids are gone, it stays that way? Kids are gone. Wife is in Israel without me. Um, oh. <laughs> yeah. I got one of my ne'er-do-well friends from high school coming in town. I'm actually dreading it because he's just he's just a bad influence. So, you know. <laughs> Yeah, uh, it's very exciting around here. So for premium longevity gain subscribers, you're going to live stream the weekend is what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Here's <laughs> here's how not to increase your health span. Yes. All right, well, let's turn our attention to the episode that we have prepared for everybody this week. Awesome guest. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. I really think everybody's going to enjoy listening to it. Uh, what was your biggest objective in... Uh, bringing on our guest, Richard Eisenberg, for this week. Yeah, you know, so uh, we, uh, on this podcast so far, we're talking to futurists and authors. We've got other people coming up, uh, academics and and other people who understand in detail this uh, shift that, that's going on. But at the same time, we're, we're talking about real people uh, living very different lives than perhaps 
expected uh, with the entire mythology around what it means to get older, uh, the concept of retirement and all of that. So this week we're talking to Richard Eisenberg, who was the managing editor at Next Avenue, which is a publication uh, from PBS aimed at people over the age of 50. And I found this years ago when um, I was working on further and it was, you know, it's a, it's a good source of information about some of the leading issues that we're dealing with, including unretirement or the idea that baby boomers were retiring, getting bored, lacking purpose, and then coming back to work. Well, Richard Eisenberg was managing editor of Next Avenue and talked about unretirement, but now he's living it. He actually retired, quote unquote, from his job, but immediately went uh, into freelancing, writing for multiple publications, continuing to contribute to Next Avenue and many others, podcasting, teaching a course at New York University on unretirement. So, you know, let, let's uh, talk to someone who's not only uh, an expert in these topics as a journalist, but he's living it. He's doing it himself. And that perspective, I think, is really valuable. And this is going to be the first of many interviews that we do uh, beyond the experts and academics to talk to people who are starting their own businesses in their 60s, right? People who are blazing new career paths. This is an important aspect of it because I think we can gain key insights from talking to people in the trenches, if you will. Not that it's warfare, to use another bad analogy. As, and I love in this interview, we talk about some of the language and yeah. casual ageism that kind of slips out. But uh, yeah, I, I really enjoyed this one as well. Yeah. At one point, you know, I asked him why he made the choice to leave his managing editor position at, you know, at, at where he had been. Um, and I, I loved his answer. I'm not going to give it away. Folks need to listen. But I just think he has a great perspective on this topic. And it's fun kind of listening to his story. And like you said, how he's living it firsthand. Absolutely. All right. With that, let's uh, shift over and talk to Richard Eisenberg. All right. Well, we are very excited to be joined on this edition of Longevity Gains by Richard Eisenberg, a proudly unretired freelance writer and editor who specializes in issues related to aging and personal finance. Richard, first of all, thank you for joining us today. Really a pleasure to be talking with you about these topics. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. Absolutely, absolutely. So, you know, you have really spent your career, you know, kind of helping people manage their money better, make their careers better, answer the questions we all face as we move through the different stages of life. When did you realize helping people in this way was your purpose? Well, you know, I sort of fell into it. Uh, I started uh, at Money Magazine as a fact checker back in 1978. Uh, I had been I graduated from journalism school at Northwestern and knew I wanted to work at a magazine in New York City, but I wasn't sure exactly what kind or where. And when I started looking around, there weren't very many jobs, uh, but the ones that were hiring tend to be ones re relating to business and personal finance. 
So I interviewed at Money, and I thought, well, this is a way for me to learn some things and and you know try to use the skills I've got and pick up some new ones. And I ended up staying there about 19 years, doing everything from being I started as a fact checker, then a writer, an editor. I eventually was the executive editor, was the Washington correspondent. Um, and then you know as I spent the the years there and ever since, and other places I've been at, Next Avenue and Good Housekeeping, Yahoo, uh, I I just found like. I want to be helpful to people. That's why I went into journalism. And if I can help them manage their money better and understand personal finances and now aging and retirement a little bit better, um, that's great. That's what I like to do. And how did you- Richard, yeah, I was just going to comment on Next Avenue, which is a publication that uh, I started reading about four years ago. Um, We run another publication called Further, but it's aimed at mainly at the Generation X age group, kind of the new midlife and and where we're going from here. And it's turned out to be fascinating, but a lot of what's covered at Next Avenue has really been leading edge about things to think about, especially if you're not quite in your 60s yet or whatever the case may be. Uh, and and that's been very useful. So it's uh, you were there ten years, I believe. Well, yeah, I was part of the launch team. Thank you for being a reader. Uh, I started with them when we were just trying to figure out what Next Avenue would be. It was back in 2011. Um, it was the idea of the guy who ran the public television station in St. Paul, Minnesota, who, uh, as I understand it, said that next that PBS should be doing something for at that point baby boomers, as it had done Sesame Street for little kids. And he was spending years to try to figure out what that should be. Should it be TV, a website? Finally decided a website would probably be best. And so a few of us started it up in 2011. We went live in 2012. At the time, it was for people over 50, and that meant baby boomers. But now, of course, as you say, it includes Gen Xers, a lot of Gen Xers and baby boomers. So uh, I, I was there for about 10 years. Uh, left as the managing editor, uh, edited the money in the work channels, wrote for them quite a bit, and still write for them. Yes, I noticed that. I uh, that was when I realized, wait a minute, this guy used to run the thing, uh, and I've heard you say that you get to stick with just the fun stuff now and not do all the managing stuff, which I totally understand. Yeah, that that is the fun part about in retirement. Those ten years that you were there, what? What changed the most in terms of the issues that you were addressing, the questions that you were getting? I assume a lot changed in those 10 years while you were there. Yeah, it did. You know, when we started, there weren't that many journalists who were writing about getting older. Uh, and and it's, it's, a, it's a general interest uh, website for people over 50. So I did the money and the work channels. There was a channel about health. There was one about caregiving, one about lifestyle. And, um, you know, other than ARP, there weren't that many other people who were doing that sort of journalism. But over time, that's really changed. And now um, there's still there are more journalists who are writing about aging issues uh, for newspapers, for websites, for whatever magazines are left. Um, And, you know, what we found was as our audience stayed with us, they got older. And so some of their interests uh, changed a little bit. So. By the time I left, I think I was probably doing more articles about Medicare and Social Security than when I started, because when we started, it was mostly people in the 50s who were, you know, thinking about those those things a little bit, not too much the way Gen Xers do these days. Um, but as they get into the early, mid, late 60s, those things become much more important. Mm-hmm. 
So you left that role as managing editor in 2022, and you said, you know, you still write there and still do a whole bunch of other writing and podcasting, as we mentioned. Why did you leave? And and what kind of plans did you have in mind when you stepped away? So I've been there 10 years. I turned 65. I just felt like this was a time in life where I wanted to try some new things, give somebody else a chance to figure out how to run Next Avenue and, and come up with new, fresh ideas for doing it. Um, but give me the time to do things that I didn't have the time to do when I had a full-time job. And so that has now allowed me to be doing some kind of volunteering and mentoring that I didn't do. I felt I didn't have the time to do before. And also to write for some places that I didn't get a chance to write for before and, and do the podcast. So, um, I, you know, I'd been thinking about it for a while, but I think it all kind of crystallized as I got to the 10-year age 65 mark. I think it's curious that... If it were not for the fact that you were 65, you would say, I quit my job and became a freelancer. But instead, we have this conception that what you're supposed to do is retire in your mid-60s. And now we have this trend that's been going on even pre-pandemic of unretirement where people are like, you know what? I don't have any purpose, really, (laughs) because a big part of that was work. And of course, I love the fact that you're able to have more time to do um, volunteering and other things that we should be able to do like, probably throughout life, but we get very intensely busy during those child rearing years. Um, but but what are your thoughts on that? I mean, do you think unretirement is something that uh, is pertinent to a transitional period that society is going through as we see a lot of things change where it just becomes, okay, now it's an encore career or it's, here's what I'm going to do next. I'm not going to retire. I just don't want to do that anymore. <laughs> yeah, I think that's probably it. You know, it, it, to me, it's about not having a full-time job where you are sort of chained to something all day long, every day. Now, I love my job. But there were days that I didn't want to work all day, every day, and I didn't love all the meetings and some of the administrative work. Um, and, and there were things I just wanted to do that I felt I didn't have the time to do. And I think increasingly, as people are thinking about the what, what retirement will mean for them, that's what they mean. Uh, now, you talk about freelance writing, and I am a freelancer, but I don't think of myself as one in the in the traditional sense of freelancing either. I feel like Freelancers are people who are making a living if they're fortunate to do it. They're working full time every day as freelancers. They just don't have one boss. They just write for lots of places. I'm freelancing, but not all day, every day. I have, you know, I'm writing for Next Avenue, for Market Watch, for Fortune, a little bit for ARP. Uh, and so I would say most days I'm doing some work, but some days I'm doing no work. Some days I'm working all day, but not that often. So to me, I am doing freelancing, but I don't know. I wouldn't call myself a, I'm certainly not a full-time freelancer. Mm. Right. Makes sense. Now, this this kind of unretirement stage that you're in right now, Richard, what what are some common misconceptions that you think people have about either what it's like or what it takes to, to succeed in, in this role? Well, you know, I often tell people that I think a lot of us think a lot about what we're going to retire from, but we don't give a lot of thought about what we're going to want to retire to. And that trips up people as they get into the stage of life because suddenly they say, well, now what am I going to do? And they 
sometimes they get bored or they get depressed. And so I feel like it's really important uh, to think about this before you take the step. You don't have to know exactly what you're going to be doing or and certainly not what you're going to do every day. But you should have a pretty good idea of, of basically what you want to spend your time doing, in generally speaking, and maybe have some anchors uh, as that, you know, these are the places I'm going to try to do my kind of work. This is the kind of volunteering or mentoring I want to do. This is how much time I want to be able to spend traveling and with seeing friends and family and that sort of thing. And, and that'll change over time. But I feel like if you don't think about that in advance, and if all you're thinking about is the financial side, which is pretty much the way advisors tend to tell us to think about retirement, which is, do you have enough money or not? And if you do, you can retire. And if you don't, you can't. I think that's part of the package, but that's not all of it. And so I feel like I want more people to be thinking a little more holistically about how this stage of life will be for them and how they can make it fulfilling. You know, and, and Brian, that really goes with a lot of the things that we've talked about, you know, when it comes to unretirement that you've talked about at further, you know, in terms of not just finding something to do, but actually finding a purpose, you know, with, with what you're going to be doing. Well, yeah. And I think it's more than that. And Richard touched on it, which is, as he, as he said perfectly, which is, you may not want to do this anymore or what you've been doing, but you need to think about what you want to do. And that's really what struck me uh, as someone in my 50s and uh, our audience of people our age, which is that, okay, Gen X is notoriously behind on retirement savings. Uh, many Gen Xers are resigned to the fact that they think they're never going to be able to retire. And that may work itself out a little bit over the next decade or so. But what I started advocating for was maybe you don't want to retire anyway. You don't want to do what you're doing, but maybe you want to do something else. And I pointed to the baby boomers and as people, a lot of, as a generation have more money than anyone else, um, and and they're still coming back to work, not for the money necessarily, but to have you know meaning and purpose. Ikigai, the Japanese concept. Um, so that's how I started framing it. It's not like instead of retirement planning, maybe you need to have unretirement planning, which is you know you don't want to do what you're doing right now forever. Um, and a lot of people we hear stories are starting businesses. So I'm starting to think of unretirement as your next act, as opposed to quitting, finding out you're bored, silly, and then coming back. Now, personally, my unretirement, Jared, was supposed to start right now <laughs> because my son left for college, but we're hanging out in Boulder for, for the rest of the year, mainly for the, the you know, the buffs. But <laughs> um, but no, my idea of unretirement is similar to what Richard said. I don't want to work all day long. I don't want to be here. I want to be traveling from place to place, not necessarily every week on the go, but you know, three months here, three months there, uh, like I've done in the past with my family. So that's my idea. I don't want to stop working. I don't think you'll ever get me to stop working but I want to do it on my own terms. I want to just do the stuff I'm really interested in. And I want to do it from a location independent standpoint, which I'm fortunate enough to be able to do. So that's my conception. And that's kind of what we're preaching to people in their 50s, which is maybe you can't retire, 
But instead of being disappointed or let down, I mean, we talk about the fact that retirement is really not that old of a concept, right? Like it didn't really catch on to the late 50s, early 60s. And that was thanks to marketers, AARP, insurance, Dell Web. These people had dollar signs in their eyes because of these big pensions that people had. And then 20 years later at the 401k era started, pensions went away and people have been struggling to save enough money unless you're very wealthy ever since. So I just feel like maybe this was a temporary concept and it needs to be redefined. I think unretirement is the concept that will get us to the next stage. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely true. I, I was reading before we talked today your excellent uh, uh, online publication, Longevity Economy Fundamentals, and you talked about how you know when the idea was first thought about Social Security and retirement, you know people weren't living all that long, so for them the idea was you know and they were getting pensions often, so they would have enough money to live on for a few years because they weren't going to live much more than that by and large. Um, and they were going to be okay. And if they weren't working at all, that was okay because they didn't have to. They had enough coming in they could afford to. Well, a lot of things have changed. We're living longer lives. We're healthier. A lot of us are long, living longer, healthier lives. Not everybody, but many people. And so now retirement is often 20, 30 years. That's a long period of time. And with every passing year, fewer and fewer people have pensions or those pensions are frozen. And so it falls to us to have the money to pay for retirement. So I think it's a nomenclature problem. I think when, you know, when you see surveys, you talked about it before, Brian, and people saying, I'll never be able to retire. Well, I think they're talking about they'll never be able to retire in the definition of their parents and grandparents. Yeah, that's probably true. But you probably will be able to retire if you define it in a slightly different way. And that probably means working sometime in your 60s, 70s, maybe 80s, if you're interested and able to do it. Um, but that's not a terrible thing. And you can still call yourself retired. It's just you're, you've retired from a full-time job, but you haven't retired from working altogether or from what I say is I haven't retired from life. And, and that's what I'm trying to tell people. They still, a lot of people still don't get that. Yeah, it, it really is a big problem, especially from a more ageist perspective that sees older people as problems to be solved instead of people who are still living great, vibrant lives and more so than ever, you know, and I, I think you're a testament to that. And I wrote about the, uh, you know, the, there's the old, uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of the Wilford Brimley line. <laughs> See, yeah, he was 52 in cocoon playing a, a an elderly person. <laughs> so now it's like a joke whenever someone hits age 52, like Paul Rudd, who looks like he's 40 at right. best, right? right. It, it's amazing. And there, there's just been a very big shift. But I just go back to the fact, you know, as a kid growing up, uh, as a young kid in the 70s, jogging wasn't a thing back then. And then the entire fitness industry and all of this that's evolved over the light, say, 40 years. Um, on one hand, you're right. A lot of people are living healthier lives. And yet we face an obesity crisis and, you know, an actual decline in life expectancy because and it's really tied to geography that uh, that some people don't take care of themselves really at all. So 
uh, it's almost like we have income inequality and we have health span inequality. Uh, where do you see that going? It's highly correlated to education. Can publications like Next Avenue and the and the work that you do help people understand that you may want healthy life expectancy to last a little longer? Uh, well, I hope so. Um, I just wrote a piece called Ageism in the Media, an Insider's Perspective. It ran in the American Society on Aging's Generations Today. And what I was looking at was, well, how ageist is the media these days? And is that any, getting any better, getting any worse? How's that changing? And my takeaway after reading a lot of research and also covering this sort of thing for years is that it's getting better, but there's still a lot of ageism in the media. Uh, I'll just point to a few statistics. There was one study that came out. It said that 83% of people 50 and older say that they feel the media and culture does not realize how much they are stereotyping older people. Um, and then there was another study I saw that said that negative descriptions of older adults outnumber positive ones six to one in the United States and the United, and UK. So, you know, that gives you a, a, an idea of where people are getting their thoughts about older people and, and what they see in the movies and on TV. It's often not all that great. And often the, there aren't that many older characters. Now, sometimes there are, but often they're not or they aren't portrayed very well. There's the grumpy old man that we see all the time. So I'm hoping that those of us in the media will do a better job of saying that, um, you know, aging has its issues. Um, there are things you can't do at 65 that you could do at 35, but that's part of living. That's part of life. But it's wrong to assume that once you hit 60 or 50 or 70, that you're over and that you don't want to do things, try new things, spend money because people do. Yeah, I think, you know, there has been some programming lately that seems like progress is being made. Like, I love the Kaminsky method with Michael Douglas and Alan Arkin. Uh, what is it? Frankie and Gracie with Jane Fonda and Lily Tomlin. And yeah. then Hacks is a great show. I don't know if you've ever seen that. Oh, but I love that, that show. Is, the boomer Gen Z dynamic there is so funny. Um, but a, if you go... if. If you go back just like 15 years and see some of the old jokes that are made, they're shocking to me. Once you start thinking in terms of how ageist, casually ageist we are, right. um, but yeah, marketers so don't seem to have caught on at all. You still don't see advertising that that's aiming for the people with the most money. And that's not hyperbole. It's the truth. <laughs> not that often. And, and I've asked people about that in, in the advertising community. And what I'm told is often it's because the people who work there tend to be in their 20s and 30s. And it's not that they're necessarily ageist, but they just don't they don't live with people like that. You know, the only contact they have with people in their 60s or 70s might be the grandparents. And so when they're working on an ad campaign, they're thinking about people like them, people in their 20s and 30s. And so they're not doing campaigns around older people. And the only time you tend to see older people in commercials are for prescription drugs during the nightly news. Um, mm -hmm. there, there's a great pop podcast that I've really enjoyed lately that um, your listeners might want to hear if they haven't already. It's called Wiser Than Me, and it's with Julia Louis-Dreyfus. And all she does is interview older women, celebrities mostly, about getting older and aging. And they're very thoughtful, very insightful, sometimes very funny. Everybody from Fran Leibowitz to Carol Burnett to Lily Tomlin, uh, Jane Fonda. It, it's really great. Yeah, I've heard of that. I've heard it's fantastic. It is.
That the piece that you mentioned, Richard, it's a great piece. Um, I read it uh, just earlier today, and we're going to link to it uh, in the show notes. Mm -hmm. Highly recommend it. And you had a quote in there from Jeanette. I'm going to mess up her last name. Liardi. Vanderberg. Oh, Liardi. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think it's Jeanette Liardi, and it really I think encapsulates so much of what we've been discussing at you know, longevity gains and really is a way to help combat some of the messages that you were just talking about. And Jeanette says, quote, tell us a story that makes us care and with which we identify, depict us as the complex individuals we are, address the reality of our challenges as well as our willingness and ability to overcome them, include us older adults on your marketing teams. You know, and I'd love to just, in your words, why that quote stood out to you and, you know, really what it should mean to anyone who's looking to reach the growing population of older adults in a way that is much more inclusive and not as, you know, other as, you know, we've, they're often depicted. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you for that. Um, it just makes so much sense to me what Jeanette says. She's, she's a very smart thinker, a gerontologist who writes a lot about aging and ageism. And, you know, I think she brings up a very good point, which is, why are marketers and companies ignoring or lampooning older adults when they have a lot to offer, they have money in many cases, um, and they're part of the fabric of society? Why should we be you know, shunting them off to the side? It just doesn't do anybody any good. I want to uh, just, I want to talk more about the the media issue, but just to revisit the fact that you teach a class at uh, New York University, right? And it's on unretirement. What is that curriculum like? That's fascinating to me. Yeah, they asked me to teach a, a master class on unretirement. So I did. It was a four-session virtual class, uh, about an hour and a quarter each session. And it was basically introducing people who are in their 60s and 70s to the idea of unretirement. And so uh, in each class, I talked about things like finding meaning and purpose in your unretirement, what I, what I call the joys and struggles of unretirement, and I talked about both of those, um, what I call mind over money in unretirement, which is the financial side, but all the non-financial side. And in each class, I would bring in an expert who's written a very good book, and I would interview them because that's what I spend my life doing often is interviewing people. So I talked to uh, Steve Lopez, who's a Los Angeles Times writer, who has a really terrific book called Independence Day. And it's all about his year-long research project to figure out should he and could he retire. And he talked to everybody from Norman Lear to people who said they will never retire to people who had retirement villages. Um, I interviewed Cynthia Covey Haller for this class. She wrote a book called Live Life in Crescendo, which I think is a great idea. And her father was the famous Stephen Covey. She wrote the book with him before he passed away. Um, a guy named Joe Casey, who has a very good book called Winning the Retirement Game. And it's about sort of the, the obstacles that we face in retirement in this new stage of life, boredom and depression being two of the big ones. And then the last one was um, a financial planner named Tony Hickson, who's based in Finlay, Ohio. He has a wonderful book called Retirement Stepping Stones, and it's all about the importance of finding meaning and purpose in retirement and how to do that. I, I thought they were all great and they were very helpful in the class, I think. Yeah, Retirement Stepping Stones is a book that we've discussed and recommended to people, again, a little bit younger, but start thinking about it now, right? And don't get caught off guard. Okay, back to media and specifically language, which you touch on in your article, because that's been another thing to me. The deeper I go into it, 
you just start to realize how problematic the way people talk about things. And again, it's, you know, ageism is the last great prejudice. We, you can just do it and no one gets upset. Unlike everything else, you know, that no one would be be racist or misogynist, but they'll throw a casual ages joke out there anyway. So uh, there's a person who is on LinkedIn and she's doing work in the tech industry about how age discrimination is even younger there, right? It's like Madison Avenue. They throw you out when you're 40 instead of 50. Um, And she left a comment on one of my uh, posts and said, thank you for all your hard work talking about the silver tsunami. And I'm just like, oh my goodness, do I I tell her (laughs) that this is not a natural disaster that's coming to wipe everything out? Yeah. And yet she was totally well-intentioned. You know, it's just one of those things. It's a real pet peeve of mine. As you say, the word tsunami means disaster. And I just don't think we want to refer to older adults as a disaster. And yet you hear it all the time and you hear it from people who should know better. Um, I hear it from researchers and, and you know, so-called experts who are, who are very knowledgeable about demographics and aging, but completely clueless when it comes to vocabulary. Right. Yeah. And that's a a big part of, I feel like our mission is in, you have to start thinking, number one, about your word choice and, you know, marketing and advertising professionals should be good at that. And yet it's so ingrained that uh, I think people struggle with it, or at least we have to find ways to nicely point it out without going on a witch hunt about it, because, I think that puts people on the defensive. And um, anyway, what what tips do you have for people to become more mindful of the type of language that they're using? Well, mindful is really the, the key to it. It's about thinking about what you're saying and how you're saying it. And, you know, is it the way you would want to be described if you were at that age, if you're if you're not and you're using terms like that? And, you know, it's not all that hard to do to to be respectful and use the right language. Um, But it's so easy for people to fall into the traps of using the wrong words. And and maybe one thing that would help people, and you may have mentioned this on one of your earlier broadcasts, is that there's some great research from uh, Becca Levy, a professor at Yale University, who has found that when we have negative beliefs of ageism and use negative words to describe ageism, it's actually literally bad for our health. She found that people live seven and a half years less when they are ageist and think that way than if they don't. And I know it sounds crazy. It sounds like, well, how can that be? What's the connection? But it's really true. You know, you have to start thinking positively about growing older, but realistically and honestly, I don't mean to be Pollyannish about this, but it's just a mistake to be only negative and to view the world as as one where as you get older, it just means decrepitude and, and frailty. And it doesn't mean that for everybody and certainly doesn't mean that for many people in their 60s and 70s. Yeah, that's one of our, our favorite recurring themes is the positive attitudes towards aging actually adds like set Becky Le- Becca Levy said, I think up to seven years of extended life, but it's also more likely to cause you to take better care of yourself, right? If as lo- you don't think you're on the way out and it, the best years are behind you. But yeah, it's uh, it's not uh, woo-woo at all. The placebo effect is a real thing. I mean, belief 
matters. And it, it stands to reason that your behavior is going to change the more positively you think about this stage of life. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that, that I've, I've found in some research I've been looking at re- lately is that people who are not yet retired or people in their, let's say, 50s or early 60s, uh, often don't think a lot about the potential social isolation you might have when you leave your full-time job. You know, even even when we're working virtually, we're talking with people all day long on Zoom or on Slack. And if we're in the office, we're seeing them. When you give that up and you don't have that anymore, it's easy to be by yourself in your home and not talk to people. And that's a surefire way to get depressed and it's not good for your mental health. And so I'm hoping that people think more about where are they going to make those social connections? You can do that through volunteering. You can do that by getting out and about, by catching up with old friends. That's something I like to do a lot. Um, Every summer, my wife and I spend a weekend in the Berkshires of Massachusetts going to uh, Tanglewood, which is where the Boston Symphony Orchestra plays. And we meet up with some old friends of ours and their spouses, and we have a wonderful weekend and catch up with each other in our lives. And it's just so energizing for all of us just to have a change of scene and to see people that you don't get to see that often. Absolutely. You know, that's such a great point. You know, and I wonder if, you know, I was on your Twitter account earlier today, actually, and I saw that you retweeted this article from the New York Times about the White House's plans to create this American climate corpse that would train thousands of what they call young people for green jobs. Right. Uh, and I believe your comment was something to the effect of why not make it a multi-generational effort and train right. older adults as well. And I wonder if part of that isolation that you're talking about is because, you know, as much progress as we're seeing made, and you mentioned in the, you know, the ageism article, you know, about some publications are starting to use different terms and be more mindful of this. But it still feels like there's kind of this ingrained thought that, well, the older adults aren't going to quite be capable of this or right for this. And everybody's kind of, you know, sectioned off a little bit. And it seems like if we made a more concerted effort to have, you know, multi-generational teams, both in business and on projects like this, that it would be helpful. Do you think that is a path to helping to combat the issues that you just described? It absolutely is. And some people are doing some great work on that. There's an organization called CoGenerate. They used to be called Encore.org. And they are all about getting older and younger people together. And they're doing some great work. The environmentalist Bill McKibben has something called Third Act. And he is trying to get older and younger people to work together on climate change issues. So there are people and groups that are doing it. I'd like to see more of it. And I was just really annoyed when I saw the Biden administration, who I'm sure had, you know, good good thoughts when they were coming up with the climate core. It's a great idea. But why do you say this is for young people? Why couldn't it be for anybody? Now, maybe it's more for young people. Maybe young people are the ones who are going to jump on it first. I'm not sure of that. It's possible. But I do know there are a lot of older people who would like to be part of this and are essentially being told, sorry, this is not for you. We don't want you. And it's especially ironic, given the ageist flack that Biden's getting every single day, you think maybe that would be an opportunity to widen the net a little bit there and say, hey, you know, there are a lot of capable people um, that are at the other end of the spectrum as well. But yeah, that's a good point. Uh, I I noted that too. Again, I become very sensitive to it. I'm like, 
why young people? <laughs> why only young people? Yeah, I mean, that's the problem. I mean, I, I think it's great that they're encouraging young people to do it, but I think it'd be even better if they encouraged people of all ages to do it. Yeah. Richard, I wanted to go back to something that we were talking about uh, earlier, just about terminology. And I'd love to actually get a little bit specific, you know, because there may be people listening to this who are still somewhat new to this topic and, you know, they want to be sensitive to these issues and use the right terms, but may not know, you know, and you mentioned in that article that, you know, terms like elderly and senior citizen certainly seen as negative and are starting to be phased out by publications that are like explicitly, you know, putting these in their style guides that we're not going to use terms like this. Um, right. Anti-aging was another one that you uh, that you mentioned what are the terms that we should be replacing and using instead of these terms? Well, you mentioned a few of them. Um, I really don't like to hear the word elderly to describe all older people. Um, it suggests um, frailty and, and decrepitude, and it's just not a, a fair description. Um, I often use the phrase older adults or older Americans or older people, not rather than the word old. I think it's, it's, uh, Older suggests a, it, it's a comparison. It's a degree. You're older or you're younger, but you're not old, which is a pejorative, I think, um, at least in our society it is. Um, senior citizens is a phrase I try never to use, but I'm surprised how many people still use it. And sometimes when I'm quoting somebody and they say it, I can't take it out of their mouth because they said it, but I wish they hadn't. I'm still annoyed that there's something called senior housing in America, and, and yet the industry that creates these developments insists on using that phrase. I'm hoping one day that they'll stop doing that. But for now, when I write about housing and retirement communities and that sort of thing, I often have to use the word senior housing, even though I don't want to, because that's what they're giving me. Yeah, we've actually had subscribers point out to me, uh, you know, they notice that I'm saying older adults older consumers, older people. Um, I, I, I didn't see senior as objectionable and now I do. Um, I get it, you know, and again, until someone points it out, sometimes uh, people don't see it. Elderly is a terrible word, but I like the word elder and it's ironic that it's the root of the same thing, but it has a completely different connotation. Uh, Chip Connolly does work uh, with people at midlife. And I think it's called Elder Elder the Institute. Modern, the modern, modern Elder. elder. That's right. Yeah. See, yeah, that, he, that's a good word. He called so, himself a, a modern elder when he worked at Airbnb and everybody else there was in their 20s and he was in his 50s. And they asked, they specifically wanted him because he was in his 50s because they thought he had some expertise and wisdom he could share with them. And he said, well, I'm happy to do that, but I also want to learn from younger people things that I don't know as much as they do. So he felt it worked both ways. Reciprocal mentoring is a really great thing when it works well. Uh, and he's got this Modern Elder Academy in Mexico and soon to spread around the country in the United States that I think is, is really great. Yeah, older people having wisdom and knowledge. What a concept. Um, what, what are your thoughts on crystallized intelligence, which is what we excel at as we get older? And it never really kind of goes away, um, as opposed to maybe pure processing speed that maybe we had when we were young. But one uh, is in short supply, one would argue, in our society. And, and we may need more of that in the workforce. What do, what do you think the trend is? Uh, will employers embrace older workers, especially as we seem to be having a perpetual labor shortage? 
Um, I think it all comes down to economics and the economy. And I think right now, employers are more interested in older workers because they need workers. But that wasn't true when the labor market was not as hot. And I worry and think that it's going to go back to the way it was when this labor market changes again. Um, I'd like to believe otherwise, but I don't think so. Um, but clearly, there's been research that shows that multi-generational teams are more productive and more profitable for employers than single generation, whether it's only younger people or only older people. Having them together um, packs a lot of punch because they learn from each other and they have different skills and talents and expertise. And, you know, you talk about crystallized intelligence. If you've been working for 30 or 40 or 50 years, you pick up a few things and not that you know everything and you make a lot of mistakes. And part of what you can convey is mistakes that you and others have made so that they don't get made again. Uh, and if you don't pass on that wisdom, that intelligence, that knowledge, they're bound to make those mistakes and they don't have to. Well said. What are the keys, Richard, to multi-generational teams working? You know, because it's, I mean, it's pretty clear, you know, there can be animosities on both sides, you know, but when they work, what what do you think are the factors that, that lead to those being successful? So there's a really great book about this called Gentelligence by a professor named Megan Gerhardt. And what she's found is that it requires younger and older generations to understand each other better and to adapt to work with each other better. So what, what often happens, she finds, is <clears throat> the younger generations often prefer to communicate by text, um, sometimes email, Slack, that sort of thing, whereas the older workers often tend to prefer a phone call or in person. And neither is right or wrong or better, but what she found was when the older workers start to do a little bit more of what the younger people do. And when the younger people were a little bit more open to what the older people do, it tended to work better. So I would just say, you know, think about how are you communicating with the people on your team of other ages? And is that working well? And if not, how can you do it? And it may mean you've got to change your ways a little bit, which is sometimes hard, but it's not impossible. And I think it's true for older and younger generations. I think it's a good thing, you know, as time goes on, because Gen Xers don't like phone calls either. I, I think we're all moving towards one place. <laughs> well, now, whenever the phone rings, you assume it's something terrible. You just think it couldn't be good, right? Yeah, Why are you calling me? Right. <laughs> what happened? Yeah. It wasn't always like that. You know, Richard, do you think that there are things that we can do as a society to help bridge some of those gaps? You know, it strikes me that in the U.S. especially, you have a lot fewer homes where you have three generations in the house. You know, you just, obviously, sometimes it happens, but you don't often have grandparents living in the home as you have in other societies. And it would seem like that would build some more natural understanding and empathy just being around. You know, and I look at, you know, my kids, obviously, I mean, they, you know, spend time with my parents and my wife's parents, but they don't really spend that much time with older adults outside of that? Like, are there things that we can do just on, even on a more kind of systemic societal level that will help that and that we should think about doing, you know, as these demographic changes continue to come? Yeah, well, I think any opportunity you can have to spend time with people of a different generation, you should do that. And it could be your own family members and maybe it's visiting more often or FaceTiming more often, but it can be volunteering. I volunteer every weekend in New Jersey at a place where the volunteers tend to be teenagers and retirees. And I love that because we're we're working together, helping doing the job, but we're learning from each other and, and doing it 
in a collaborative way. Um, you know, I think we'll see a little bit more of this happening as um, boomers are thinking about where they're going to retire and more of them are going to choose to retire to where their adult children are living and grandchildren sometimes because they know that those people are not going to be moving. So if they want to see them, they need to get closer. And I think, and, and we're thinking about doing that ourselves. And I think when we see that happening, that will lead to a little bit better um, communication uh, and intergenerational involvement than we're seeing today, but it may take some time. Richard, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for being here. I have one yeah, last question. Absolutely. Um, it, I want to go back to the article um, that you mentioned. You know, you conclude the piece by saying that there's still a lot of work to be done to combat ageism in the media, um, but that you're hopeful we can keep getting better. And I'm just curious, I mean, outside of the stuff that we've already talked about today, what are the other most important levers that need to be pressed to help continue us on the trajectory of getting better with this? Well, in, in the media, I think it comes down to the people running the media um, assigning reporters to cover older adults, just like another beat. Um, and, you know, aging covers everything from housing to income to um, uh, health. There's so many topics. So and and the audience for a lot of news outlets is getting older, not always, but in many cases. And so there's a big appetite for this kind of information. If only they would, you know, provide it and deliver it more. So I'm hoping we're going to see a little bit more that I think we're starting to. Um, and I just, and also the more we can then when we see an article or see something that we on television or, or website that we listen to or podcast, that we share it and pass it along with people so that more people can do it. We have a way of doing that now that we didn't have 10, 20 years ago. And I think that could be helpful. Richard, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been uh, delightful to talk to someone who's living it while also uh, experiencing, you know, the topics and exploring how we're going to get to the next level, the next stage of how the society is going to function. Um, I'm optimistic like you are. It's not going to be easy, but it's not going away. Well, thank you, Brian and Jared, for what you do and keep up the great work. And um, I'm hoping that your audience is going to keep growing and growing. And I look forward to listening to more of your episodes. Thank you so much. Thank you, you Richard. Bet.